Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kesed. How are you? Listen, we got a whole bunch of people online today, so thank you very much for those who are joining us there. And we've got quite a few new folks today, so thank you guys for being here. Uh, if you're brand new, my name's Danny. I'm one of the pastors. And you came on a good Sunday. We're launching a series called Vivid, and I'm going to be explaining that today. But before I do, I just, I really want to take a minute and thank all the volunteers who helped pull off Easter last weekend. Uh, it was a ton of work, and uh, a ton of work, and uh, we, <laughs> some, maybe sometime in this series, I'll, I'll let you in on some of the feedback I had, which was varied. Uh, some people were like, wow, most creative, most whatever, and some people were like, did that really just happen in church? So, which, which hey, both are win-wins for me, so I, I, was, I was good with that. Um, so this series that we're in right now, if, again, if you just started with us, you came at a really good time. Uh, the series is actually a direct response to what God seems to be doing within our community at this very moment, and I want to explain that. Uh, I'm really careful when talking about sort of uh, Kesed and growth and, and sort of the behind-the-scenes stuff around what's going on with it, but I, I can't, with what God has been doing, really keep a lot of that silent anymore. So let me explain, because uh, I'm a creative and it's just how my world works. Uh, first, that I chose this theme of neon for a kind of a specific reason. About six months ago, I came across this definition of neon. The name neon comes from the Greek word neos, meaning new. And I thought that was really interesting, and so I wrote it in my little, my little preaching binder, which is something that I have, and I was like, that's kind of a cool idea. And so we started talking about sharing with you all the things that God was doing, and then Easter happened, and I realized on Easter Sunday, uh, after 12 years, that our church is really planted, that, that the season of church planting is quite over. I mean, we sold the U-Haul, folks. We sold the U-Haul. So <laughs> we sold the U-Haul, we sold multiple trailers, we pulled everything out of storage, and we had our very first Easter uh, at, at both campuses, both buildings, and I, I just suddenly came to the space where I was like, wow, we are, we are something different. God is doing something different. God is doing something new. And it tied perfectly with this this idea right here. Uh, this new thing has a lot to do with our online presence. Uh, Kesed was quite a bit behind a lot of other churches that were doing their online streaming. I didn't feel like we could do it well, uh, and I have, an, I have an excellence issue, and so I was like, hey, look, let's, till we can do it well, let's, let's just not do it. But then COVID hit, and I was like, my excellence issue became like, hey, does anybody have an iPhone? Like, that's as, that's as, that's where my excellent issues went. Could we just duct tape it to someone's face? They could sit in the front row. I'll just talk to them. We don't care. We just need to make sure people can stay connected. Uh, and so we really did kind of go into high gear, and we ended up uh, purchasing the cameras that you see uh, mounted around the room, and we went live. And I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it other than making sure the people that I wanted to care for, our church family, was able to, to kind of tune in, was able to figure out how to use it and all those sorts of things. And then... Uh, well, and then something strange happened. Uh, somehow, people started sharing it with other people who started sharing it with other people. And just Easter, just for us, to, for context for this talk, around what God is doing that's new, tying in with neon, the top states that tuned in for Easter were Washington, Oregon. And then from there, we move immediately to all of our Canadian friends. So I don't know what, I just, I connect deeply with Canadians. It's probably something you guys didn't know, but I'm a big Canadian fan. And then... District of Columbia, Tennessee, Minnesota, California, and Arizona. Those are the top states that tune in with us. 
But the top countries is even more unique. For we now have a following in the United States, and then of course Canada, because, yeah. And then United Kingdom, Australia, Israel, Germany, Switzerland, and New Zealand. And our little church, conservatively, because I asked for very conservative numbers, there would be a way to probably maybe even double this if we wanted to go by different metrics. But our little church on Easter, uh, we were able to do church with almost 2,200 people uh, on that Sunday morning. (laughs) Yay! Until you start thinking about what does that really mean? You see, right now we have so many new and curious people within our community that it has become important for us to get on the same page and to understand just what it is we are all doing here. This is important, and I want to be as vulnerable as I can because I need you to understand that I cannot care for all these people by myself. That I I can't just preach more or preach better or preach differently. I, I can only do what I can do without starting to turn our church into something that I refuse to let it become. And so let me just, let me just pull all the, the sheets off the bed and just kind of expose what is. Uh, if we're not careful and our church doesn't engage on a, on a very practical level, uh, we will become a, one of those churches that starts branding their pastor, branding their style of worship, branding their, and we will change into something that, that I haven't seen end well for many of those churches. We will suddenly be a group of people who, think that we figured something special out, that somehow God is with us more than he's with other communities, and that God is uh, speaking through our pastor and our elders more than he's speaking through other communities, and that we are part of something that uh, is a direct response to, to us and how we lead and how we, how we respond, and, and I'm just here to kill that, like, right now. The numbers that they handed me... Uh, caused me to immediately respond with this message that you're going to hear right now. And I hope you hear my heart because I want to be and do whatever God calls me to do. But I don't know if we're prepared for that kind of a following, especially as COVID starts, you know, lifting, because not all those people uh, are in other countries or even other states. You know, probably 1,500 or so of those people are right here in the Vancouver, Portland area. And when they all come back, how are we going to care for them? Because those are people on top of you that we're all here. How are we going to be this church that God has asked us to be if we do the same thing all the other churches do that I think eventually leads to a church that, that just finds itself uh, a little more privileged than maybe, maybe it should be? So the question becomes, how can I help? Where do I begin? I'm sure that's what you're asking, and I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad. What a wonderful church. Thank you online for tuning in and asking that question. What can I do? I want to be a part. Good. Well, let's dive in. The name Vivid I chose for this series for a very specific reason because this is going to be our strategy and how we're going to maintain uh, the place God has us no matter how many people God brings. The name Vivid, this is what it means. It means producing powerful feelings or strong, clear images in the mind, bright, intense, and full of life having the appearance of vigorous life or freshness, okay? Vivid is going to be our entire strategy over the next eight weeks or so. We're going to unpack this for how we are going to survive the blessings of God. And I think it's biblical, and I think it's rich and deep. So let's start with the practical. First off, when you Google Vivid, 
These are some of the images that come up. They're almost always like this. There's a gray background with sort of a centerpiece of bright, life-giving color. Here's another one. Okay, you see the blue boat, you see the gray background, and then here's my favorite one. Okay, you see the multicolored umbrella, again, gray background. These weren't all on the same page or done by the same artist. It was just like Googled Vivid, and it was sort of sprinkled throughout this whole theme. Vivid is almost always depicted as something bright, contrasting against something dark. And this is a very practical and very authentic way of living out your Christian life according to Scripture, vividly. Something bright, contrasting against something dark. Look at John 10.10. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. There's the dark. There's the gray. Okay, there's the, 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 the cloud in the background. And then he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's the bright. There's the light. So you've got this contrast of who Jesus is compared to who the world is becoming, and it is vivid. In many ways, this verse, John 10.10, 10, is one of the most vivid verses in the Bible. And it lies within this deep idea that God came to bring full life, life at its very best, and that full life is only really fully understood or seen when it's authentically and vulnerably contrasted against the life that is at its very worst, filled with killing, stealing, and destruction. Those are the two extremes. Life at its best, bright and full, and life gray and dark and mundane and average. Okay, life at its very worst. And you and I, on a spectrum, live somewhere in between there. That's where we exist. I'll start with me. I am not currently an active thief or murderer. But I am still someone who wrestles with the gray and the darkness. I'm also not currently living life to its very fullest. But I am someone who wants to burn bright as I possibly can. My life lives within that spectrum. So the question becomes, I'll put it on the screen, how do we live our own lives fully and help others do the same? Because if we can't figure out here in the room and those who are local online how to live our lives fully, we have no business shepherding and serving the people who are being drawn to this light, who are coming to this light. And right now it's beautiful because right now it's organic. Kesset has never done a mailer, you know, a neighborhood mailer. Kesset has never done any sort of marketing. Every single person that is here in the room or is watching online is here because you invited them to be here or because someone shared the message. This is your fault, ultimately, is what I want to say. I'm responding to what you've done to our little church. We were fine. And then you started sharing, and people started wanting to be a part. So how do we start with ourselves, live our lives in this full and authentic place so that out of that abundance, we can serve other people. To begin, we need to start by having proper perspective about our own lives. This is going to be a tiny bit of a heart punch, and so I just need you to receive it and then let it develop into, uh, I think, something beautiful. The proper perspective of your life and mine with Christ is not a very easy one. Galatians 5.22 Okay, this is a true life living at its fullest with Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If John 10.10 was the most vivid verse, I think Galatians 22 and 23 is the meanest verse in the Bible. Because the list of those things is, is like, can you imagine that those are the things you're supposed to be living with every single day? This is what vivid living looks like. 
full patience, full wisdom, full vulnerability, gentleness, self-control. Like some of you, including this gentleman right here, some of you, you've already DQ'd yourself within the first half hour after you left your house. I live in La Center. Between La Center and this church, there's three roundabouts. <laughs> I can't make it through one roundabout without sinning currently in my spiritual state. <laughs> Not one roundabout. And the hardest part about it is these people who don't know how to go through roundabouts, oftentimes their excuse is kindness. They pull up, they're to the right, it's their turn. I'm behind them. And they look over and they go, no, no, nobody does that at a stoplight. Like it's green, but you know what? You red light folks, go ahead and come on through. Come on through. And all of a sudden, this kind lady's letting everybody through the roundabout. And I'm like, I want to choke you. Like that's what I want to do. But it's Sunday morning and I don't know if she's coming to this church or not. So inside, I'm seething, and my wife's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, look how kind she is. This is, her kindness is against the law. My entire purpose is I just want to be a two-roundabout pastor. I don't even need to get through the third one. If I could get through two roundabouts, then I feel like the self-control in my life would be developed. And that's just self-control. That says nothing about gentleness or goodness or, or patience or love or joy or peace. This is how we describe vivid living. And guess what? You can't do it. Proper perspective is you and I cannot do it. Proper perspective, biblical perspective in relationship to you and God is that I'm here and he's way, way over there. This is proper human perspective. I'm right here. God says live with gentleness. I took five steps back. Live with patience. I took five steps back. Got my church suit on, got my sermon prepped, all right, I'm ready. Love, five steps back. Kindness, five steps back. Every time he hits me with a new way of living vividly, I'm taking steps backwards. This is proper biblical perspective. Romans 5.20 says God's law, okay, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. God's like, here's what I want you to do, okay, Ten Commandments. I want you to love one another, and I want you to obey, and I want you to keep the Sabbath, and I want you, and it was like fail, 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 fail. Well, that was helpful. Thank you, Lord. May I have another test, please? Sure, sure, here's some more sacrifice, sacrificial systems. Sure, sure, here's some more ways in which you're going to set your culture and your side apart. Fail, fail, fail. The entire thing is one big giant failure. I'm here, he's over there, and the Bible says he did it on purpose. Every human being starts in this exact same dark place. And that's because the core human predicament is the problem of separation. We're separated. And if you want to be authentic about how to help yourself and how to help other people, you've got to start with proper perspective. And that perspective is that you are separated. And you're not just separated from God. That's what the church teaches a lot, and it's important. But what that results in is actually where most of us meet most of our failures. Because first, we're separated from God. Then we're separated from each other. Because I don't just have peace and patience and kindness with the Lord and what he's doing. I don't have it with you. And you don't have it with me. And then that ultimately results in you being separated from yourself. I told the church close to five years ago that I put myself in therapy. Because I have seen the end of this movie where a church grows and it develops and the pastor loses his way because he has nobody to talk to but other people that he's shepherding. He has nobody that can say no to him with power. He has nobody in his life that says, do you think that's normal, Danny? So I put myself in therapy. And then I had people in our church be like, well, if you're so unhealthy, you've got to be in therapy. Why are you up there teaching? 
And I was like, okay, you do it. And they were like, you're good, you're good, go ahead and get up there. And <laughs> you're good, we'll just be messed up together. So, and you know what, my marriage has changed, my, 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 the, the life with my children has, has changed, and I think many would say that my pastoring has changed. Because I'm not as separate from myself as I was, but the very first thing I learned in therapy was that Danny was lost from Danny. That I didn't know why these things bothered me this way, and I didn't understand, and I just had never spent any time weaving together anything in my story to how I am as an adult man, and it made my story muddy, and it spilled out onto situations like it shouldn't have, and I have seen the end of the movie, as I said, where the church grows, and it becomes more intoxicating and more intoxicating and more intoxicating, and next thing you know, Danny's medicating in some way that disqualifies him from being able to share it all. This is the story. It's not just my story. It's a lot of your story. The business grows, the family grows, the responsibility grows, the struggle grows, and all of a sudden you start medicating because you're so separate from yourself that you hurt inside and you ache inside, and it's like a wound that you just cannot get rid of, and you basically have a heart limp. And everywhere you go, you're limping, and people see it, and they point at it, and you try to fake it, and then you're like, man, I got to do something about this. And so you pick up the bottle, or you turn on the computer, or you lie, or you over-spiritualize. That's a lot of us. We over-spiritualize everything. We start making everything, oh, it's just the struggle. It's just the enemy. It's just, it's just Satan coming after me, and I'm just here to be like, hey, time out. I don't think, you know, I, don't, I mean, I think if Satan wanted to come after you, he would maybe attack you somewhere else than a roundabout. Maybe, maybe that's just you. Maybe Satan's not sitting, at, maybe he is, though. Maybe his whole strategy is like, uh, we're going to own the city of the sinner now, demons. Go roundabout attack. And everybody's just like, ah, I don't, I don't know about that. I think sometimes it's just yourself. Stop blaming everything on Satan. Sometimes you just haven't woven together yourself, which means you don't have a woven together community, which means your story with God is all kinds of unraveling. Hmm. Ooh, a lot of emotion in the room right now. Let's take a minute. I'll let you catch up. Yeah. Isaiah 59.2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The hardest part about this verse is that if you've been close with God and then you've kind of unraveled from him a little bit, and, and, I, and I think this verse doesn't mean God doesn't see you at all, but that he maybe doesn't allow you to see him quite the same. Boy, is that a lonely space to go because you knew what it used to feel like. You knew what it used to be like. And now you're just playing the game. You're just playing the church game or the spiritual game or the family game and you're not, you're not really in it because you're so busy medicating and numbing because you know what it's like to be close and you are maybe more than anybody else in the room can feel that separation. This separation I'm talking about is what the Bible calls sin. But I want you to notice that it's not sins. It's not separate, discrete acts of moral failure. It's a state of being. A state of separation, a state of estrangement and alienation. It's me here and him over there. And it is a core human experience. And what are you going to do about your separation? And if you decide not to do anything about your separation, then why are you talking to other people who are going to be coming to figure out what to do with theirs? So, what do we do? How do we live our own lives fully, developing those, that fruit of the Spirit, 
and help others do the same while existing this way. First thing you have to do is have proper perspective. We're separated. I think the next thing you probably need to do is stop calling the stuff in your life. If, if you're honestly in this space, stop calling everything in your life fruit of the Spirit. Just because you have, you know, like a grape of the Spirit that God gave you that you left in the dash of your car on a summer day and it shriveled up into a raisin doesn't mean you get to walk around telling everybody you've got all this fruit of the Spirit. Some of you, you just got dried, dried fruit of the Spirit. That's what you got. It's all chopped up, put in a bowl. It smells nice. You're basically potpourri of the Spirit. That's what you got. And people are like, oh, you're so patient. And you're like, I am patient. I was told that at camp many years ago. Or, oh, you're a leader. Or, or you're a speaker. Or, oh, you're our teacher. But you're so separated from yourself that even what you teach is really just filling the void because you medicate with the ministry or with the worship or with the songs or with the game. So I think you need to be authentic about that. So what do we do? We do what we always do. We go back to the Bible and we read the rest of the verse. Romans 5.20, same one I started with. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, and then look what he does. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. See, he is over there, and I am over here. But when I turn to him, and I proclaim that separation, when I offer him my best fruits, dried and rotten in my hands, when I'm authentic about the fact that I'm unwoven from him and my family and myself, when I just sort of expose what I am, when I sort of just am honest and filleted open, as Paul says, before him, when I am that, it appears that God turns and suddenly there's no gap at all. It appears, according to Scripture, the only thing that can really overcome this state of sin, this state of, of estrangement, is grace. This is my favorite definition of grace, and I didn't find this definition of grace to make it work with the sermon. This is a definition of grace, and the sermon just worked with it naturally. Here's what grace is. Grace is the work of God, the divine gift which unifies that which has been split apart, alienated, and separated. That's what grace does. Grace finds you where you are, and suddenly you are, the gap is closed, and you are face-to-face. This unification, by the way, is not something that you can achieve by performing better or defining your life better or even switching churches or, or you can't achieve it in any way by yourself. That's what actually makes it grace. Inside grace, something is overcome because grace occurs in spite of separation and estrangement. Grace is what vividly shines in the darkness. When you are proper with your perspective, when you are honest about the separation, the predicament of sin and within your life, when you are authentic about being unwoven from your personal story, from your community, and even from your God, and then you still, with all of that proper stuff placed around you, say, God, I'm here to offer you this. I'm here to offer you my unraveled life. I'm here to offer you my, my own brokenness. I'm here to offer you my addictions. I'm here to offer you my church game. I'm here to offer you my dried spiritual fruit that I've used to impress my fellow men. I'm here to offer you all of these things that this world says are worthless, and I'm asking for your help and your love and your acceptance. Grace is what envelops that offer and makes you and I whole. God answers when you ask, with complete, saturated grace. Again, not based on anything you did or accomplished, quite the opposite. We are accepted, 
by that which is greater than us, not because of what we hope or intend to do, not because of our past, present, or future performance. We are accepted because we ask. And I'll put this on the screen. We can start living the life God calls us to by accepting the fact we are accepted. And that is some vivid, vivid living. Because when you start living your life accepting the fact you are accepted and your offer was all that stuff, your offer was what the world called trash, your offer was what the world called worthless, your offer was what the world said wasn't lovable or wasn't enough or couldn't do it or failure. When you offered all that stuff to God and he envelops you with it, you are a radically transformed person. And here's the biggest thing about it. When grace happens to you, which is what happens, you don't go find it, you don't go dig it up. You don't go build it. Stop tracking. You can't take credit for it at all. Or it's not grace. Okay, it's all Danny. Anything Danny can take credit for is Danny. Whatever God wants to do with Danny's stuff, that's God. But when I start taking credit for, yeah, I, I, you know, I built a really good life out of this trash I, you know, I used my poor experiences to build this amazing testimony, and now I get to speak to people, and God's growing our church, I guess, because I do really good with the stuff I'm... What? Shut up! Just shut up! That's not true! It's not true. God is using this place and your life and your testimony and your finances and your prayer and your worship and your teaching just because He wants to, and just because we ask. Not because it's better than, not because it's more special, not because it's more valuable, it's completely opposite. It's just you and your stuff. And if you've done anything at all in order to draw the attention of God, it would be that you stopped in the midst of your stuff and said, I'm overwhelmed by the grayness of my life. And I offer it all to you, Lord. And I want to live my life different. And I've got nothing except you, the story of the cross, your resurrection. And I know that you, I know that you know that I don't deserve anything, but I'm still asking. That posture seems to be one that God replies to. And that's when things get really, really incredible. For when grace happens to us, if what I just said is true, that you did nothing, when grace happens to us, you may not even be better than you were before. You may not even believe more than you did. You may not suddenly have all your addictions fall away. You may actually wake up the next morning the exact same person. I realize that's not very romantic. I know there's a lot of sermons that say, here's the deal, come down front, we'll pray all your stuff away, and you'll leave different. I don't believe that, because I don't see it. As a matter of fact, I see just the opposite. For when grace happens to us, the only thing that is transformed when grace happens to us is that grace conquers the sin in our lives, and reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement. So now we are still the same broken Danny, but we are leaning upon and aware of God's presence in all those situations. In essence, we move from I'm here and he's over there to we belong as we are where we are, even if nothing's better. Even if nothing's better. See, this is where, this is where we're just going to get Really personal, because somebody in the room is wrecking my sermon right now. So listen, listen. I understand that you want to make everything some sort of spiritual inoculation. I get it. And I understand that what you've done in the past worked, and then it didn't, and then it did, and then it didn't, and you've somehow tied it into this, this idea that, 
you were better then and now you're not. You just got to get back to that mountaintop. I'm just here to tell you, all the fruit grows in the valley, right? Mountains are generally fairly cold with a lot of dead stuff up there and beautiful views. Nobody lives on the mountaintop. People survive and change and transform in the valley. So whoever you are that you're in this dark spot, welcome to your Christian life. Because this is where stuff changes. This is where stuff happens. Because if you can accept God in the valley where the fruit of the Spirit grows, then you can take some of that fruit with you. And yes, you can go to those mountaintops so that you can help develop who you are and help develop your person. But at the end of the day, you're still just bringing all your stuff to God. And it's still him who's making it. It's still him who's breaking it. And it's still him who's using your life. But you and I are called to live our lives where we are, as we are, accepted simply because we ask. And I think this is where a large portion of Christendom, okay, just Christendom, has gotten it wrong, is that we've offered people Jesus as if he's a way out. When really, when you offer somebody Jesus, you're just letting them know he's willing to come in. Verses like this, Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Okay, do you not perceive it? Keep it right there. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'm standing up, so you know it's getting serious right now. This is important for you to realize, because we always read these verses, and we're like, yes, that's what I want. I want God to do a new thing in my life, right? That's the neon. And it's going to be so new that you can perceive it. That's the vivid. It's going to be colorful and bright and big and bold. And I want so many people to see the work of the Lord in my life. And his new thing, by the way, it's going to spring forth. We're going to get out of this muck and out of this stuff and out of this hard stuff. It's going to be so great. This is a hard season, but there's a beautiful one coming. Come on with me. Let's go, community. And you're still separated from yourself. You're definitely separated from each other. And unless you read the rest of the verse, I'm even going to say maybe you're separated just a bit from God. For look at where he does the new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and the river and in the desert. See, God's not about removing you from the wild places. He's about doing new things with your life in those places. He doesn't say, come on and get out of here, people. Travel with me to this beautiful paradise. He says, nope, I'll do a new thing. It will spring forth. It will be vivid so people see it. But the whole point of vivid and the whole point of living a bright light is that it happens against the gray contrast of the darkness. And so he says, I will do a new thing and it will happen in the wilderness where it's cold and the bugs bite and people fight because they don't know how to set up tents properly. I'm going to do a new thing in the rivers and half of us can't even swim. Scary, I don't want to be on the river, Lord. Lord, I'm praying my way out the river. And God's like, I'm going to do a new thing in the river. Not, no, no, you misunderstood. I'm trying to pray my way out of the desert because it's hot and it's, it's, it's vast and it's freezing at night. And there's no life out here. And God's like, I know. Can you imagine if I taught you how to live in the desert? Like how vivid would that be? People would perceive it. Can you imagine if the boy who couldn't swim suddenly was giving swimming lessons? Wouldn't that be profound? That'd be vivid. Can you imagine if in the wild places, in the wilderness, suddenly you were, you were immune to this or that or the other thing, or you found great joy in this place in the wilderness? Wouldn't that be vivid? We have literally prayed our way out of all of the beautiful spaces to live vividly. Instead of saying, God, I'm inviting you in. I want you to be a part. Right here, where I'm at right now. God's new thing springing forth does not remove you from the wild difficulties of your life, period. 
Stop trying to escape them. They are a gift for you. Church planting has been a gift for me and the hardest 12 years of my life. And that's why now that the church planting gift has gone away, now that we've tamed the wilds and we've mapped the rivers, and all of a sudden the deserts are pretty livable because we have an oasis. This is now when we have to stop and say, okay, God, hold on, things just got really easy and people are starting to want to come to this. We, we need to pause because people are going to think we did this. So what do you have next for us, Lord? What is new and next for us, Lord? Where's the next wild place? Because there's people that you're bringing to our doors and unless we can give you proper credit and not suddenly pretend that we're wilderness Christians or river Christians or desert Christians, that's what we do, right? We'd brand the whole thing and we'd be like, desert church, this is how you do church in the desert. Come learn from us. Instead of being like, hey, you know what we did? We prayed. We were honest with God that we had nothing to offer. And like, he showed up. Like, there was a rock and we were like, we're thirsty. And God was like, here's some water. <laughs> Instead of telling everybody, like, we took four steps and then we prayed this chorus, right? Here's the prayer I'll teach it to you. It's got five different lines of spirituality. We took our staff, we tapped it twice, and then we said, water, Lord, water, Lord, please come forth. I said, what? How did nobody figure this out before but you guys? I know, right? I don't know. It's just, I don't know why we're so awesome. This is what we do. This is what we do. This is what I'm constantly trying to dismantle in our culture. And yet we find ourselves in the same crossroads as everybody else with resources and help and people coming. And my question during this series is, is your heart prepared for that? For this is how you start serving this community. You show others the new way God has provided for you in the midst of your wild places. Because what people need to see is you seeing that. They need to come and build you up. They need to see you as something supernatural, as some sort of spiritual giant. They need to see it. Let them see it. It's the way Jesus uses it all the time. They need to think that because I'm on this stage that I must have figured out something so that they can get in a room with me and watch me say, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. What I do know is that I stood before the cross of Christ, and I knew that I was part of that. As much as I stood before the empty tomb, and I knew that I was also part of that. But I didn't roll that stone away. And I did put those nails in. And he showed up in the midst of my own upper room and said, peace be to you anyway. What would happen if we were a church that was that wasn't just inviting people to come to where we are, but actually went into those wild places. What if we gave up our comforts? What if we gave up this mentality that we've made it and we exchanged it for authenticity within our marriage stories? We need more people who've been able to be married and stay married to tell other people how hard it's been. We need people who've been through divorce and been remarried to tell people what a blessing it is. We need people to be authentic about their, their past, current addictions and the way they medicate. We need people that still can show up and serve and help, but don't try to hide 
maybe some of the most beautiful parts of their stories. And we need people who are coming to see other people constantly saying, all I know is Jesus. That's all I know. And if Danny got hit by a truck today, God would just grow another version of him. Probably a little bit taller version. <laughs> but I don't think he'd be as funny. But that's just me. I don't know that for sure. But I, but I think so. We need people to see us seeing with proper perspective the new thing that God wants to do in our wild places. But for that to happen, we have to admit we have them. We have to admit they're difficult. And we have to stop trying to escape them. We need to teach them what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. And that is that you and I were made to be seen as a vivid example of a life set bright against the darkness. But you've got to stop pretending the darkness isn't there if you want to shine as bright as you're supposed to. Your story matters. Your mistakes matter. Your triumphs matter. You are valuable. And you are saved simply because you asked. This is what it means to live vividly in a multi-generational, multi-racial, welcoming, inviting community of people. We'll talk more practically over the next few weeks about what that looks like. But my offer is the same. Let's go into the wild places. Let's struggle. And let's watch him do exactly what he's always been doing. Let's make sure he gets all the credit and all the glory and that we get to watch him use our lives to do beautiful things in difficult spaces for hard-to-reach people. Amen? Yeah. This is my third time preaching the sermon. It absolutely hit this crowd harder than the other one, so I don't know what's going on in your world right now, but <laughs> even your amen was like, amen. <laughs> I hope you're encouraged by it because you should be. You have a lot to reflect on, though. There's some conviction in the room that should last beyond this time with me. So pray about it. Talk with friends. Get a coffee. Send an email. Do what you need to do. But the time is now, and you are welcome. And I'd love to be a part of it if you'll have me. So would you stand? We're going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of spaces and a lot of roads and a lot of trails that led each person here today. And whether they're just here for this one uh, interaction with you or they're here because you are starting something new in their life or they're here to be convicted or they're here to be forgiven, Lord, you know all those things. And my prayer is that you would let them know you see them, that you accept them in the midst of their wild places that you want to do a new thing, something that will spring forth, something that will be vivid, something that will be perceived, and that they have so much to offer in spite of what this world is teaching them. And so, Lord, we just offer our measly gifts to you. We offer all that we have and all that we are to you. We pray that you would give us what we need to take care of the people you're calling into our community that you would be our lead pastor that you would be 
you would be the only symbol anybody ever sees. We give you, God, our hearts, and we ask that you would weave them together, first within ourselves, then within our community, and most importantly, that it would be woven to you. We lift this time to you. We thank you for all that you're doing. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys. We'll see you next week.